I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And on today's show, we examine the life and legacy of the constitutional rock star of the moment, Alexander Hamilton. You know about him if you've heard the music or been lucky enough to see the show. The 70th annual Tony Awards are about to be held, and the big winner is expected to be Lin-Manuel Miranda's musical adaptation of Ron Chernow's best-selling biography of Alexander Hamilton. But what is Hamilton's constitutional legacy? Is he, in fact, a model that we want to embrace today? And what about the competing constitutional vision of his arch-rival, Thomas Jefferson? Has that been overlooked in the musical craze? Joining us to examine the constitutional legacy of the $10 founding father without a father are two of the the nation's leading legal historians and scholars of the founding era. Annette Gordon-Reed is the Charles Warren Professor of American Legal History at Harvard Law School. She is also the Carol K. Fortzheimer Professor at Radcliffe and a professor of history in the Harvard Faculty of Arts and Science. Uh, And we're always thrilled to have her at the National Constitution Center because of her award-winning scholarship about the founding era. And Michael Klarman is the Kirkland and Ellis Professor of Law at Harvard Law School, also an award-winning legal historian and author of a forthcoming book about the founding era. Annette, Mike, thank you so much for being here. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us, Jeff. Wonderful. Well, let's just jump right in by putting the constitutional stakes on the table. Uh, We have the rap lyrics ringing in our ears, uh, some of us do. But Michael, you're about to write about um, a book about Alexander Hamilton's role, both in the Constitutional Convention and afterward. Can you give our listeners the brief uh, summary, the elevator speech vision of what his constitutional vision was? How did he think the executive should be constituted uh, in relation to Congress? And uh, what was the constitutional aspects of his economic policy? So there are two important things to understand about Hamilton from the perspective of the Philadelphia Convention. Uh, He wants the national government to be much more powerful than it was under the Articles of Confederation. That means he wants a national government that can raise taxes rather than simply asking the states for voluntary contributions. He wants a national government with plenary power to regulate interstate and foreign commerce and he wants a national government with almost unlimited powers over the military. He actually makes a speech at the convention where he favors just, he says he would favor just doing away with the states, but he realized that would be seen as too radical. So instead he proposes that the national government be able to appoint state governors who could then veto any state legislation that seems inconvenient or wrongheaded. The other aspect of his vision is what I would call anti-populism, He wants a national government that is far removed from populist political pressure. That means he actually wants a lifetime tenured Senate. He wants a lifetime tenured president. He wants lengthy terms in office, even for the House of Representatives. That's because he thinks that democratic government is insufficiently protective of property rights because he believes the people are fickle and changeable and that they're not going to necessarily support a government that needs to do the sorts of things he wants done like raising taxes and protecting property rights. So he's a nationalist and he's an anti-populist, and those are the two most important parts of his vision. Thank you so much for that 
extremely concise and helpful vision, nationalist, anti-populist, very strong executive, might even eliminate the states, uh, uh, unconstrained executive. And that, uh, Gordon Reed, can you contrast uh, Jefferson's constitutional vision and what were its core elements? Well, Jefferson's constitutional vision was exactly the opposite of that. He was, uh, for the people, he thought that the con- his constitutional vi- vision emphasized the people as the seat of all power, and therefore uh, concentrated a lot on the legislative branch uh, and as a check on the executive branch, and that uh, he had formed his ideas about government in the Revolution. The Revolution was the pivotal moment in his life, and he wanted to do away with anything that smacked of aristocracy and a monarchy. And when he heard the, the uh, Hamilton's idea, or heard of uh, Hamilton's idea about having an executive that served on good behavior, meaning for life, and a Senate that served for, um, for life, he thought that this smacked of trying to bring back the British system. And in fact, Hamilton extolled the virtues of the British system, uh, that's the one he knew the most. He had been trained as a military man and um, uh, had served in, in, in wartime. He wasn't a financial expert, but he took his cue from what was going on in Great Britain, and this was anathema to Jefferson. So his constitutional vision, Jefferson's constitutional vision, was to raise the people, uh, to have the seat of power in the people, to have horizontal separation of powers with with each you know branch checking the other and sort of vertically a believer in the state's rights and the powers of the states uh, should not be subsumed under the national government. He understood there had to be a national government, but there should be a proper balance between uh, the, uh, the national level and the state level because he thought that the closer the people were to the government, the more likely people could participate and make the, the will of the people known. So he was trusting of the people in the way that Hamilton was not. Thank you so much for that wonderful uh, statement as well. So, Michael, uh, as Annette Gordon-Reed describes it, the Jeffersonian vision that the people should rule, that government should be checked, and the president is not a king, and that the aristocratic moneyed interests should be restrained have had great resonance in American constitutional history from Jefferson to Jackson to Wilson to Franklin Roosevelt. Um, w- w- t- is it broadly true over American history that uh, Jefferson has... Uh, triumphed over Hamilton? Has it been a battle? Basically, how has Hamilton's vision fared uh, from the founding era up to the present? Uh, It's fared well in some ways and not so well in others. It's important to keep in mind that a lot of Jefferson's anti-Hamiltonian vision is a function of what Hamilton does as Secretary of Treasury rather than an abstract opposition to what Hamilton wants in the Constitution. So we know when Madison sent Jefferson a copy of the Constitution in Paris, where Jefferson was representing the country, Jefferson was actually pretty pleased with the Constitution. There are a couple things about it he didn't like. He didn't like the fact that the president could serve forever, that there was no mandatory rotation in office, and he was very much opposed to the idea of not having a Bill of Rights. But other than that, he thought the Constitution was a pretty good idea. What he didn't like was what Hamilton was doing to implement it as Secretary of the Treasury, And we should keep in mind that James Madison, who became sort of Jefferson's second, his lieutenant, when they formed an opposition party to what Hamilton was doing, Madison was on board with most of what Hamilton supported during the Philadelphia Convention. So we should be aware of the possibility that the opposition to Hamilton's vision is more in opposition to what he was doing as Secretary of Treasury rather than what he was trying to do in the Philadelphia Convention. 
So what was he trying to do as Secretary of Treasury? He was trying to create a national bank, which Jefferson very much opposed and Madison thought was unconstitutional, Jefferson as well. He wanted the federal government to subsidize manufacturing, actually to pay bounties to manufacturing corporate uh, entities. And he wanted the federal government not only to fund the national debt from the Revolutionary War, but also to assume the state debts. That's an issue where Madison had actually been on board but when he became a congressman from Virginia, Virginia was a state where there was a lot of opposition to federal assumption of state debts. So Madison changed his position. So the, the Jeffersonian political party forms in opposition, partly in opposition to those fiscal and monetary policies of the Hamilton administration as Secretary of the Treasury. It's not so much an abstract opposition to the Constitution. Thanks so much for that, Michael. Um, and Annette, uh, there's been recent scholarship on Madison's uh, role in the convention and how it may have hardened Hamilton's position uh, by Mary Builder. Tell us about that. Uh, Mary Builder's written a book called Madison's Hand, in which talks about the, he, was, he was the one who kept the notes of the Constitutional Convention, and he shows them to Jefferson. And when Jefferson finds out about Hamilton's speech, uh, in which he calls for the very things that Michael talked about, um, an executive that served for life and Senate that served for life, he began to see sort of a pattern emerge. He began to think of Hamilton with his policies as the Treasury as the sort of counter-revolution that very often forms after a revolution is made. And as I said, the revolution was the pivotal point of Jefferson's life. And the notion that, that anybody might roll it back put him on a collision course with Hamilton very, very early on. Uh, after they had originally gotten together, you know, they'd gotten along pretty well. But then he begins to see a pattern emerge, and he thinks he sees the pattern emerge, and they become enemies, uh, professional enemies. Uh, thanks so much for that. Um, Michael, tell us about the fate of the Hamiltonian vision in the mid to uh, late 19th century. Uh, the, the Whig Party fell apart over slavery and immigration, but it had embraced a kind of economic egalitarianism that Hamilton repudiated. Uh, what, what, what's been the fate of Hamilton's sort of aristocratic notion that uh, the uh, rich and privileged rather than the people should should rule? So Hamilton's vision for the federal government and the economy has actually done pretty well. His anti-egalitarian vision has fared less well, although I think it's worth pointing out that Jefferson also changed his view over that over time. Jefferson was not necessarily a huge fan of some of the developments of Jacksonian democracy. He was not always as enamored of the common man as, as um, we, we probably like to tell ourselves. You know, Hamilton believed that the national government had an active role to play in promoting economic growth. He wanted to support manufacturing. Jefferson's image was of a country primarily of farmers. Jefferson didn't believe in banks. Obviously, that's a view that uh, didn't do well over the course of history. Uh, Hamilton's idea that the national government ought to do things like build railroads and support national banks, create land-grant colleges, and then in the 20th century, the national government ought to do things like establish Social Security, regulate labor policy, uh, support health care for, for poor people. That's part of the Hamiltonian vision. That's the vision that triumphed in the Supreme Court. That's the vision that John Marshall wrote into the Constitution in the 1830s, uh, sorry, in the 1810s, 1820s. That's a vision that Jefferson found anathema. Jefferson was a strict constructionist. Jefferson wasn't even sure the United States should acquire the Louisiana Territory from Emperor Napoleon because he wasn't sure the Constitution authorized that sort of acquisition of land. So in broad construction of the Constitution, Hamilton's the big winner. 
Uh, Jefferson is kind of on the side of the state's writers, the people who ultimately supported nullification and secession. Uh, that's why, as a result of the Civil War, Hamilton started to look very good by the late 19th century, and Jefferson perhaps less so. Thanks so much for that, Michael. Uh, Annette, uh, do you agree that Jefferson's strict construction of the Constitution has been the historical loser, and his criticism of big government as well as uh, big banks uh, has fared less well than Hamilton's broader construction? It has been something. Jefferson's construction of the Constitution, his vision about the Constitution, has been the loser. We have adopted more broad construction, but it wasn't because he was against internal improvements. It wasn't because he was against all these things. He just thought that people should should have a constitutional amendment. I mean, when I started out talking about the power of the people, he was for a participatory democracy, and if people wanted these things, they should, in fact, pass an amendment and put it in the Constitution and do it, rather than having a judge make the determination as to what should happen. Now, I mean, we're used to that right now, but you can understand how a person who thought that this was supposed to be a democracy where people got involved, uh, and it wasn't for elites to make these decisions, uh, why he would be, he would think that some of these things were good, a national university, I mean, internal improvements, but he thought you had to have an amendment. Um, so that's what I would say about that. Uh, very interesting. Michael, is there nothing uh, that uh, resonates with Jefferson's uh, legacy? His, his criticism of big government continues to have acolytes on the libertarian right, uh, and his criticism of big corporations uh, has uh, some acolytes on the uh, civil libertarian uh, left, uh, as well as even in this presidential campaign where we've been hearing a lot of talk about breaking up the banks. So what is the constituency for Jefferson's constitutional vision today? I think all of the founders have constituencies pro and con today, which is why we still find them alive and attractive and why we want to invoke them. So what's attractive about Jefferson is the populism, the belief in local control of government, uh, people who think school boards ought to be making important decisions today, that control of education ought to be local, can invoke Jefferson on their side. Jefferson wrote this incredibly powerful ideological appeal to egalitarianism, which still gets invoked today by supporters of gay rights and women's rights and immigration rights. People who believe in the equality of all human beings can invoke Jefferson, although there is this irony that Jefferson, the author of the Declaration of Independence, was a big slave owner. Uh, strict construction has lots of proponents today. The conservative justices on the Supreme Court who dissent in the health care case are believers in small government. They claim to be the dissenters in the Obergefell decision, the gay marriage decision. They criticize it as anti-democratic in the same terms that Jefferson would denounce John Marshall uh, for his strict construction, for judicial elitism. Uh, so there are lots of aspects. And, and the anti-elitist uh, 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 commercial policy. Jefferson believed in, in not having a national debt. He believed in a balanced budget. That's something that people find attractive today. And the, the populism, anti-populism debate is very resonant today in the form of, you know, Hamilton trying to fund the national debt at face value, which meant speculators who had purchased national debt at pennies on the dollar were going to be paid off in full. Jefferson and Hamilton and Madison were appalled by that. They didn't see why these speculators, mostly New York uh, speculators in national debt, ought to be making a fortune. Uh, it has real resonance today with the uh, 99%, the anti-Wall Street rhetoric, and Jefferson was on the side of the little guy. So uh, on that one, Jefferson still has a very powerful constituency today. Great. Well, as we've teed it up, you've both well-described Hamilton and Jefferson's constitutional visions and both their constituents and critics. 
uh, today. Let's now turn to the musical. Annette Gordon-Reed, you've written some really important and powerful pieces uh, saying that while you love the musical and it's brilliant, uh, and if it weren't, you say you'd be less forgiving, um, in some ways uh, it misrepresents Hamilton's views on race and wrongly lionizes uh, the patron saint of banking and speculation at a time of populist fervor. Let's begin with the claim about uh, race. You said uh, in an interview with the Harvard Law Record, the musical exaggerates Hamilton's abolitionist fervor. He and his wife may have owned an enslaved person, and he did help others buy and sell enslaved people. Hamilton, the fervent abolitionist, exists to burnish his image as a good guy and to heighten the contrast with Thomas Jefferson. Tell us more about that. Well, we have sort of a battle of the network founding fathers view of things here. If you like, if you are interested in one founding father, the other one, you know, Jefferson up, Hamilton down, and vice versa, whatever. I mean, Hamilton was a member of the abolition of, of the Manumission Society of New York, which was a moderate organization that encouraged people to free their slaves. Um, but that is not abolitionism as we know it, uh, as we typically think of it. So I think that for day. For today's audiences, where if you want to establish someone as a good person, you have to have them on the right side of that question. And he was on the right side of that question, but not to the extent that the play makes out that he is sort of, at one point, a character, John Lawrence says, we will never be free until those Holden bondage have the same rights as you and me. And Hamilton agrees with that. I don't think that he actually did in life think that uh, the American Revolution would not be real uh, unless all enslaved people were freed. That was not on his mind. It wasn't on Jefferson's mind. They were on, uh, they were thinking about the development of the United States of America. So that's just a, that's a point to remember about it. And it just struck me as strange in seeing it that that um, was played up so much when it really didn't have to be because the musical stands uh, by itself without that. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Michael, uh, I know you're looking forward to seeing the musical. You've heard the album, but tell us more about Hamilton and race and what his position on slavery was in the convention and after it. So it's important to realize there's nobody at the Philadelphia convention who is proposing that the Constitution do away with slavery or that the national government be empowered to do away with slavery. And that's for a variety of reasons. One is the northern states want to have a union with the southern states, and the southern states are deeply invested in slavery. Forty percent of the population in Virginia is enslaved. Fifty percent of the population in South Carolina is enslaved. A third to a half of southern wealth is in the form of slaves. There's, there's no way southerners are going to agree to a union without slavery. But it's also true that northern states still had slavery. A couple of them had put slavery on the road to extinction, but certainly not New York, New Jersey. Those states still had thousands of slaves. New York had essentially as many slaves as Georgia did in 1787. Northerners believed in protecting property rights, and even Northerners who didn't think slavery was justified as a matter of natural law tended to have racist views about black people, and they were not necessarily supportive of the idea of liberating black people. Then you'd have a population of free blacks, and what were you going to do to control them? So nobody in Philadelphia was proposing the idea of writing an anti-slavery constitution, and if they had, then the constitution wouldn't have been ratified by the southern states. It was much easier for northerners who were in states where slaves were small percentages of the population. Slaves were maybe 7 or 8 percent of the population of New York by 1787. They were less than 1 percent in Massachusetts. It was much easier for people in those 
uh, jurisdictions to take anti-slavery positions. But in South Carolina, you're, the representatives at the convention are four of the wealthiest people in the country, all of whom owned hundreds of slaves. Their whole way of life depends upon slavery. There's just no chance that they're going to go along with an anti-slavery constitution. So it's much easier for Northerners at the convention to oppose slavery. They're not invested in it. They come, don't come from slave societies. Even some of the Southerners, like George Washington and George Mason from Virginia, are opposed to slavery in principle, but they're also very large slave owners. Both Mason and Washington had hundreds of slaves, and what they favor is some sort of future, gradual, hopeful emancipation, but they're not going to do anything at the present moment to abolish slavery because they realize it's just not practical if they want the Constitution to have a chance of succeeding. Uh, very, very, very interesting. That the, so there's really uh, few abolitionist uh, heroes at the time of the founding. Annette Gordon-Reed, tell us more about your criticism of the musical, not only on race, but also for lionizing a uh, defender of the aristocratic classes. You say in an essay uh, on the National uh, called Blacks and the Founding Fathers, how could a work that so abashedly celebrates the Founding Fathers and has no storyline for black characters not take some hits from academic historians? Why in this age of concerns about inequality and big banks are we doing going gaga over a play about a man who promoted both? Tell us more about that. I, I want to emphasize that I, I think that piece is a critical analysis of it. I love the musical. Uh, I, it, for me, I was trying to figure out why it is that I and my fellow academic academic historians like the play so much, even though it sort of stands in opposition to a lot of the things that we've been trying to do over the years, that is to say, to complicate the narrative about the founding um, uh, founders and uh, founding fathers. And I think the answer is that it's hard to argue with great art. Um, you know, it's, uh, it stands on its own, but it's worth pointing these things out because this is what we do. This is you, any piece of art, no matter how good it is, can withstand and must be, you know, must be analyzed. I think, as I said, it was surprising to me that we would like it so much, given that there are no black characters other than Sally Hemings makes a brief appearance. Uh, she's referred to, uh, even though there could have been. Um, so there's no narrative of black life in the in the play, uh, even though it makes it does make some references to slavery. But it is not the kind of story that you would expect people to be telling now. And I just sort of wondered if the actors had been white, if we would have the same reaction to it. And that wasn't by way of criticism. It's just asking the question, what, is, what does blackness do? Uh, what is blackness doing in the play? Um, and it's, I think, in some ways forestalling uh, a critique of the somewhat rosy narrative. Uh, and at the same time, the positive side it is apparently giving a number of black people uh, a sense that they had a stake in the founding in ways that they may not have before. So it's very, very complicated. It's good and bad. Michael Carmen, what do you think of Annette Gordon-Reed's critique? She says that the fact that African-American actors are used is insulating the play from criticism for not having a storyline for black characters and for celebrating this tribune of the aristocratic classes. You've read the Cherno biography. You've heard some of the soundtrack of the musical. Uh, do you agree or disagree with this critique? So I haven't seen the play, but I do want to talk about the inequality question that you raise. Uh, I don't think most people are aware that the debates over economic inequality today are exactly the same debate they were having in the 1780s, and the Constitution was addressed more than anything else 
exactly to that question. So the 1780s was a time of deep economic recession. It's not unusual after a war to have a recession. Uh, there have been tremendous destruction of property during the war, and European countries were cutting the United States out of uh, trade patterns that existed dur uh, during the colonial period after the war. So it's a terrible time for the economy. Taxes were going up on people because governments, state and federal, were trying to fund the war debt. Uh, people are being asked to pay taxes. Farmers are being asked to pay taxes that are higher than what they're used to at a time that the economy is in recession, and there's very large, there's very little amount of hard currency. Most of the gold and silver has fled the country for Europe, so farmers are going bankrupt. Thousands of farmers are going bankrupt because they're being asked to pay these higher taxes in cash that they don't have. They turn to state legislatures for relief. They ask for paper money, and they ask for debtor relief laws. A majority of state legislatures give them what they want, and that was appalling to the economic well-to-do. And now we're talking about Madison, Hamilton, Washington, and Jefferson would have had that same opinion as well had he been in the country. The Constitution was an effort to prevent state legislatures from doing that, and to make sure that the national government itself would never adopt those same sorts of economic relief measures. It was a debate between ordinary farmers who were hard hit during the Depression, who had turned to state legislatures that were under populist control, who had offered relief to indebted farmers so they didn't have their farms foreclosed upon, and the economic elite saw those as lazy farmers who didn't work hard enough, who didn't want to pay their taxes, and who consumed too many European luxury items and ought to be willing to cut back a little bit on their budget for uh, French imports. So they're very unsympathetic, the elite, to the pressing needs of these economic farm, uh, to these uh, hard-hit farmers. And so they wanted to write a constitution that would make sure this sort of debtor relief legislation never happened again. It's very much like uh, Mitt Romney in 2012 and the 47%. That was the view that the economic elite had to the downtrodden farmers. Very interesting. Well, Annette Gord-Reed, given the fact that we're hearing proposals to break up the big banks from the field of burn progressives to Ted Cruz Tea Party people, why isn't Jefferson more explicitly invoked, given his proposals to amend the Constitution, to prohibit the setting up of monopolies, and his general economic populism? Well, I think he is being invoked. I mean, there are all kinds of spurious quotes <laughs> Uh, from him on the internet. I mean, people talk about him, but he has a, Jefferson has an issue now because of slavery. Everybody's fixated on him mm. as the sort of earth slaveholder. I mean, on, in the play, if you didn't know anything about American history, you would think the only slaveholder up there was Jefferson. Uh, but that's necessary to kind of have the point, counterpoint between, you know, the Hamilton who is portrayed as the abolitionist and Jefferson is portrayed as the southern slaveholder. So I think the racial, the race problem with with Jefferson, uh, to the extent that it's preventing some people, I think it prevents some people from invoking him in this matter. Even though I do see his name come up quite a bit um, in in all these discussions about banks, and sometimes the quotes are right and sometimes they're wrong. But that is the surprising thing when you have people cheering, you know, in one line of the song, and we've got the banks, and we're in the same spot. Uh, when he's talking about uh, the dinner table bargain in which he wins, uh, with Hamilton wins. Uh, assumption of the state's debt, and doesn't matter what the capital is. And so the sort of glorification of that seems odd, as Michael is saying, when we have the same uh, similar circumstances right now and a concern about inequality. We have a person who was, you know, an unabashed elitist uh, whose economic plan 
for, for banks is really not so much about unleashing the power of small farmers, giving credit to those people. It was a British system. He was for giving money to the merchant class, and it was almost like a trickle-down notion that if you got those people involved in the federal government, then everything would be okay. But the people, the little people who became Jeffersonians understood that banks, they might have wanted banks as he did, but they wanted the banks to live lend artisans and and small farmers' money. That was the power that was unleashed economically. I mean, we're not living under the Hamilton system of economics, really. We're living under a system of economics that he did not actually didn't favor. He wanted banks, but not banks for the little people, banks for um, um, the uh, uh, for the rich. And that certainly exists, but the power that was unleashed in the 19th century came from uh, the spread of wealth and the spread of the energy among everyday citizens, uh, the rise of a, of a middle class that always seems to be rising in history. So uh, it, it's an interesting thing. I, I, don't, I think Michael is right. We don't really know People don't know of the connections between the past and the present and understand who was on what side. Very interesting. Uh, Michael, uh, if Annette is, do you agree with Annette uh, that uh, it's because of race that Jefferson's economic egalitarianism is less cited today? And what to make of this economic egalitarian tradition? Sean Wilentz uh, was just here at the Constitution Center, his great uh, new book about uh, politics and uh, equality says that that tradition from Jefferson to Jackson to uh, Woodrow Wilson to FDR, mostly Southern white men who did not have a great record on race, is given that reality, is there any hope of resurrecting that tradition of economic populism today? Well, it's true that historically, the people who favored localism and states' rights at least until the last 50 years, tended to be white Southerners who were defending slavery or defending the Jim Crow system. I, I don't think that's the case so much anymore. In the last 50 years, the people who oppose national power tend to be people who don't like redistribution, so conservative Republicans who don't believe in a very generous uh, welfare state. They're the people who oppose national power. Uh, I, I do think it's hard for Jefferson because uh, opinion on the race issue has changed uh, so dramatically, and, and Hamilton does seem to have the, the better of that. Uh, there are things about Jefferson, as I said, that are still very attractive. The egalitarianism of the Declaration of Independence, the idea of localism, the anti-elitism um, to many people, the, the, anti, uh, the anti-court uh, expansion of, of judicial power. Many people still find that attractive. Uh, the slavery, obviously, is a, is a black eye for Jefferson, but I don't think that's the only thing. Um, I also think, you know, Jefferson believed that farmers were God's jo- chosen people at a time that 90% of Americans lived on farms. Today, you know, less than 5% of the population lives on farms. Obviously, we have a commercial and manufacturing republic, a service economy. The world has changed, and Jefferson's preference for agriculture just looks kind of quaint and and kind of antiquated. Same thing about banks. Jefferson didn't just oppose the national bank. Jefferson thought people shouldn't borrow money. It's hard to imagine a world without banks, and Jefferson obviously lost on that very quickly. But at the time of the founding, there were only one or two banks in the country, uh, and obviously you had a dramatic expansion of banking, and Jefferson was on the wrong side of that. Uh, Jefferson also toyed with support for secession in 1798 when he was opposing the, uh, the Adams administration's Alien and Sedition Act. So 
that put Jefferson on the wrong side of a really important issue culminating in the Civil War. Jefferson seemed to believe that states had a right to nullify federal law and to secede from the Union. So I, I think, you know, I, with all the framers, we find things that we like and we find things that we don't like. Probably Jefferson and race is a hard one to overcome today because our views have changed so much and because we find incomprehensible the idea of holding property in human beings. But there's still lots of things people find attractive about Jefferson and unattractive about Hamilton. Hamilton's elitism is extraordinary. He didn't believe that people should have much of a role in government. He thought people were foolish. He thought if you let people vote, they would elect demagogues. He didn't believe that popular government could protect property sufficiently. You know, And he believed, as, as, um, as Annette has been saying, he believed in fostering a capitalist class. He liked the idea of paying off the national debt at face value. So you'd have wealthy people who could align their interests with the nation, lend the national government money. I mean, that's not necessarily the most attractive vision today. Thanks for that balanced uh, assessment of Jefferson. And you began to get into Hamilton. It's time for closing statements. And I'm going to ask each of you uh, the same one. Uh, Annette Gordon-Reed, in a balanced sense, uh, what is Hamilton's constitutional legacy today? What should we celebrate and what should we not celebrate? Well, I think we should celebrate uh, his understanding of the power of the national government. Uh, I think his understanding of skepticism about states and states' rights is something that we should uh, consider, uh, not the abolition of the states. But I, I think his conception of a strong, his understanding that we needed a strong national government is an important, is an important thing. Thank you so much for that. Michael Klarman, uh, what do you believe Hamilton's constitutional legacy is? What should we celebrate and what should we not celebrate? Well, we should celebrate Hamilton's life, the idea that you could come to the United States as an immigrant and become one of the most powerful people in the country and do these amazing things to put your country on the road to economic success. He was a brilliant Secretary of the Treasury. He was just generally a brilliant person, and many of the founders were brilliant. Hamilton, Madison, Jefferson, extraordinary people. I fear that we've largely driven those people out of politics these days, um, and I think that's not a good thing for the country. It's hard to imagine those founding fathers running for political office today. I think they would choose to pursue other cons- uh, other pursuits. Uh, his broad construction, I agree, is, a, is attractive. The idea of a living constitution, the idea of the national government being able to respond to cha- changing circumstances, not be placed in a straitjacket based on the preferences of people 225 years ago. I think that's a sensible position. His elitism is a mixed legacy. On the one hand, we do believe that ordinary people ought to participate in politics. We don't believe that elites ought to dominate uh, economic policymaking. But the framers were on to something really important. Democracy has some attractions, but democracy can be a nasty business. And the framers predicted that if you allowed the people to participate without restraints in politics, they would be seduced by demagogues. And the 2016 election is a test case for their warnings. I mean, the country is is close to electing Donald Trump president, and that's something the framers would have been horrified by. But that's what they thought democracy could translate into. So that's a mixed legacy. I mean, we're not elitist in the same sense. We think ordinary people have the same humanity. Ordinary people have the same rights to participate. We don't believe in property qualifications. Almost all the framers believed in property qualifications for voting and office holding. But on the other hand, the framers said democracy is a dangerous people, the dangerous idea, the people are turbulent, the people are passionate, and the people can be seduced by demagoguery and 
they were right about that. That is a that is a danger that is lurking around us. Thank you so much, Michael Klarman and Annette Gordon-Reed, for a nuanced and illuminating evaluation of the strengths and weaknesses of Alexander Hamilton's constitutional legacy. It's been an honor to talk to both of you. Uh, Michael, Annette Gordon-Reed, thank you so much for being here. Very welcome. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Jeff. Good to talk to you. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Josh Weinberg and Tom Donnelly. Get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash constitution CTR, and on our Twitter feed, twitter.com forward slash constitution CTR. Please subscribe to We the People on iTunes. While you're in the iTunes store, leave us a rating and review. It helps other people discover what we do. Please also subscribe to Live at America's Town Hall, featuring conversations and debates presented here at the center across from Independence Hall in beautiful Philadelphia. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the Panoply Network at itunes.com forward slash panoply. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. And remember, if you join at the level of $100 or more, I would be thrilled to send you a signed copy of my new book, Louis D. Brandeis, American Prophet. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.